Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, Jim. How you doing? Can you hear me? Ango. <laughs> what is the problem? Me. <laughs> yeah, that's what uh, that's what my IT guy always said. He said, yeah, there's one major problem with your system. That's you. <laughs> User error. <laughs> That's right. Hey, Tim. Hello. Hi. Tim, have you started, uh, have you read this book? I've never heard of it. You bought it for me. <laughs> so I read through the introduction. I saw, uh, of course, what he's doing is very pertinent. That's what happened when I picked it up a week or two ago. I thought, oh, Paul's got to read this and interpret it to me because it's above my pay grade. Well, in, in a sense, he uh, everything that I'm saying, he's confirming. Ah, excellent, excellent. <laughs> so just keep listening to me. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Matt, good to see you. I don't know if you've said this before, but I've heard this, someone said this about the Gospel of John or the fourth Gospel, that it's shallow enough for a baby to swim in, but deep enough for an elephant to drown in. Yeah. A person's imagination is just kind of come alive. Mm. And John, I think, is an example of that. That here's somebody who is just lit up with mm -hmm. connectiveness, a kind of transformed imagination. He is thoroughly Jewish. You know, this is uh, imagination is Jewish in the same way that, well, not exactly in the same way that Paul's is, but it's almost irresistible. You can't. We're, we're kind of being trained, I think, not just how to read the Bible, but how to look at the world. I, I always think of people like J.R.R. Tolkien or C.S. Lewis, the, the idea that here are people who just talk about a transformed imagination. And that's kind of the way I look at John, that he is leading us in this direction. Dave, Matt, good to see you. Sorry, I well, well, I like the fact that even there's a, a theological study, and he, he references Thomas Kuhn all over the place, too. Yeah, the, the uh, paradigm shifts that, yeah, Kuhn kind of being, became standard in that. What Harris, Harrisville, what he's doing, what Bear is doing, is taking apart a scholarship on John. You know, you, you read something, somebody says, oh, everybody knows this. And of course, yeah, that, yeah, there may be a consensus in the scholarship. And of course, that's what's happened. John has kind of gone through stages that various scholarly groups have claimed him for a particular understanding. And of course, the bizarre thing that this book is doing it, but I think there Bear is doing it, is just taking apart the notion that John is a Gnostic. No, it, it, <laughs> that's in the, that that's just not possible reading it. The other thing is that what Harrisville's thesis is, this book assumes that a discontinuity exists between the New Testament message and its religious environments. The thesis of this book is that the discontinuity between the New Testament and its rivals is created by the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth who was witnessed to in the New Testament as risen and exalted Lord. In other words, the, the crucifixion of Jesus, is, and that's what Paul says, uh, that's you know the picture in John, oh, this is just offensive to everybody. A crucified Messiah or a crucified Logos. And of course, crucified means enfleshed. I, ironically, this is what the reformers will do, but Harrisonville actually takes on some of the church councils, that the tendency is to do what the Gnostics do, and that is to spiritualize, to separate out the deity from the humanity. And of course, the whole point is that, that goes over and against who Jesus is. It goes over and against who God is revealed to us in Christ. Anyway, I wrote a blog but I'm, I'm making a claim about, I think, about John, but I think just about the New Testament. 
one of the things that is clear, and you know, when we're children, you you study the book of John, and Jesus shows up and says, you know, come follow me. And people drop everything and follow him. Our tendency is as mature adults to come up with some rationalization for why people would drop everything and follow him. That is that what we've tended to do is in some way dampen down or tamp down the notion of conversion. And of course, what we're encountering, I think, throughout the New Testament is this idea of conversion as a complete change of worldview. And the way that that sort of thing happens in very Kuhnian terms, you know, Thomas Kuhn will talk about scientific conversion, that it is this sudden thing. I think that probably we should stay with a naive reading. In other words, what is taking place in the literature? You're talking about John being both deep and, you know, a a child can read it and understand it, and, and an adult. I think that part of what we tend to do is we don't have an appreciation for what the writer is doing at a literary level. I mean, that's kind of the genius of John, is that he's working a kind of literary understanding that is quite intricate, and our tendency may be to rationalize it or to in some way explain it. And I think that in doing that, we may be, in fact, missing the point. That no, he says things the way he says it, he describes it the way he describes it for a reason. You know, in the New Testament, there is the picture that violent men would take the kingdom of God by force through violence. And this in Matthew is the transition between John the Baptist and Jesus. The same thing is occurring in in John, he says that the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Christ Jesus. The law is in some way falls short. I don't think we have to take this as an absolute statement. You know, is there no grace? Is there no truth? But in other words, here is the fullness of grace. Here is the fullness of truth in Christ. Hey, Brian, uh, Brian, I have said some very exciting things that any person here can summarize for you and catch you up. Can I try? Go <laughs> <laughs> did, did anybody read my blog last week? Which, which one? Because I feel like you put out six of them a week. <laughs> yeah, that's how that's how fun they are to read. <laughs> The violence of the law which killed Christ. This happens to fit with what, you know, Tim, uh, the book that Tim sent me on fracture, you know, the, the part of the problem with John is that, and we see this in New Testament scholarship, is that everybody seems to come up with a different idea about what this book is about. But if I had to come up with an idea, I think that it is it fits into the overall theme of the New Testament. And that theme then has to do with, as in Paul, the transformation of the mind, conversion, and what we mean by conversion is a change in worldview. And what we mean in terms of a Jew, and this is uh, Harrisonville, you know, his book, in other words, what's happening in the New Testament and especially in John, is not comfortable for anybody, for any set worldview, Jew or Gentile. As Paul will put it, the cross is a stumbling block for the Jews and foolishness for the Greeks. And I think John is a a case in point of what Paul is saying. Why the cross? Because at the cross, This is the point in which the incarnation is fulfilled or complete. You know, the early church fathers will even talk about the incarnation unfolding backward from the cross. And of course, the the part of the gospel, part of the gospel that is offensive, is first of all that the Messiah, deity, 
the logos, you know, could be enfleshed. You know, even if we're talking about wisdom, if we're talking about the ego, a me, if we're talking about, you know, tetragrammaton, oh, to talk about those categories as enfleshed is over and against a Jewish understanding. But understand that's also over and against a Greek understanding. What we're talking about, the worldviews being overthrown, is specifically overthrown then in the manner of the death of Christ, the fact that Christ died. Our tendency is then, or the human tendency, Gnostic as it is, as displayed in Protestantism, as, as displayed in people like Boltmann, who kind of captured New Testament scholarship, or F.C. Bauer, uh, that they're all going to do what I think people always do. They're going to spiritualize. Their tendency is toward a disincarnate understanding. Part of then what we're describing, that we just define sin as violence, which at some level may not sound right, but if Christ defeats sin on the cross. I think there is the idea, you know, this is Paul's picture in Ephesians, that he talks about the period of enmity, of hostility, in which the kingdom is violently manipulated through the dividing wall. What is the dividing wall? It is the law. And so Christ breaks down the dividing wall of hostility. That is not just Paul. I think that that is a doctrine of the New Testament that John, then, is also telling us about. And so, as John the Baptist explains upon seeing Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the violence of the world. I misquoted it. But I think the, the sin of the world is the violence of the world. The lamb, what is a lamb? The lamb absorbs the violence. And so here is the victim of violence who takes away the violence of the world, the sin of the world. I just had a question about what you, you said, that we, our tendency is to spiritualize. One, I wonder what you mean by that. Because uh, in our, Go ahead, go ahead. I'm glad you asked, because what I mean by that, obviously, the... Uh, to spiritualize can be a good thing. But I think what we often mean by spiritualize is the spirit over against incarnation, the spirit over and against embodiment, so that the Gnostics in their spiritualizing are creating another dualism or division. The body is spiritual. The flesh is spiritual. So that we encounter the, the spirit of God in, in the incarnation. So the way I was using that was to say that we tend to do what the Gnostics do and divide flesh and spirit, or, or body and spirit. Obviously, spirit to spiritualize, to be spiritual in one sense, is, is good. Well, just one thing I wanted to say, too, again, to kind of support your, your thesis about the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Well, and I can't remember where I read it. Maybe you brought it up in this class, and I'm just reiterating it. But the idea is that it's the blood of bulls and goats that takes away the sin of the world, not lambs. So John's obviously doing something very different here. And again, isn't that all tied in with the Paschal Lamb? And the fact that in John, the death of Jesus is on the night of the Passover. It's not on Friday. And so he's just kind of like, again, stretching the whole paradigm to a completely different re-understanding of what this Jesus care, you know, what's going on in that whole story. That's good. Yeah. And, and Jesus will quote, you know, the Psalm uh, and part of the tradition in the old Testament that's, that talks about God doesn't want oxen and, and bulls. Uh, he's not interested in sacrifice. And of course the passage I'll, I'll get to it here in a minute is all messianic that the whole Psalm and Jesus then is applying that psalm to himself. The zeal, what I'm coming to, and this, this will come to a bit more next week, uh, that in John's depiction, violent men killed Jesus because of their uh, understanding of the law, their zeal for the law, their zeal for the temple, their zeal for the sacrifices. I don't think this is at all anti-Semitic, 
because I think the Jews are just a case in point of what it means to be human. The Romans are also going to kill Jesus for their own. They're also zealous for their law. John is just depicting the human problem, and that human problem, as Paul will depict it, is in connection to the law. And I think we have a hard time nuancing this as to say exactly, well, what is the problem with the law? Is it the inherent to God's law, which is holy, just, and good? Or is it, does it concern human orientation to the law? And of course, I think that the idea in the New Testament is that once that people take up the law, whether they're Jew or Gentile, what they do with the law is what is being described in the New Testament in John, that they use the law in their zeal for the law, they kill the Messiah who embodies the law. In other words, here's the true lawgiver. Here's the one who is greater than the law. And Jesus challenged to, you know, it's a, a continual challenge to the temple, to the Sabbath laws, to, you know, what true sacrifice is. It is a discussion about what has priority. And of course, their idea is that, that the law is the way in which God deals with human beings, that he comes to us in and through the law. And the point of the New Testament is to say, no, the law was never an end in and of itself. And in fact, to take the law as an end in and of itself, this zeal for the law, is what kills that violent men kill Christ. Uh, I did a little thing with Walter Benjamin. I don't know how valuable it is, but I think it applies. And that is, actually, Matt, you can probably uh, help us with this in natural law and positive law. That is, when we're talking about natural law, that we have this idea of a body of unchanging moral principles, and the end point of the law is to establish justice and morality, and violence then, in that end, is adjust. In other words, the, the means is justified by the end almost inevitably, you know, that the way you're going to establish natural law, that it is in and through some violent means. In the Old Testament, the Jews come into the promised land, and they wipe out all the people there. It's genocide. But what's happening with the Jews is not any different than what happens in this, on this continent, both, you know, south and in the Americas, that the brown people and the, the uh, red people are going to be obliterated, that the law might be established. And so the law is being inaugurated from out of this originary violence. And this is Walter Benjamin. Walter Benjamin is a Jewish refugee from Nazi Germany. In fact, he actually doesn't make it. He kills himself because he thinks that the Nazis are going to arrest him. But this is his point, is the law is inherently violent. This is from an article, The Critique of Violence. Uh, and the question does not arise, according to Benjamin, in natural law, whether violence is a legitimate means. He just says it's like, you know, it's just an accepted, it's a raw data. The deployment of violence means violent means to just ends, he says, is no greater problem than perceived in a man's right to move his body in the direction of a desired goal. That is, the way you get from point A to point B is the movement of violence, the way that you originate the law, the way you get it up and running. Uh, and so natural law has this understanding. He equates this, he says this isn't particularly a problem that arises with Darwinian evolution, but he says Darwinian evolution is a, you know, kind of a popular notion of, of uh, natural biology. It regards violence as the only original means besides natural uh, selection appropriate to all vital ends of nature. And of course, he's living under a regime who is taking that quite literally that they've embraced a kind of violence in an attempt to purify the race, in an attempt to, you know, in some way manipulate evolution. 
And so just as peace is established through war, uh, so too final justice calls for final solutions. And of course, that should ring true there that he predates, you know, he, he's, I think he kills himself in 1940. But of course, we can't read somebody like him without recognizing the Holocaust is the context in which he's writing. And so that would be one form of law. The other form of law is positive laws that are created by people, the human institutions, in which violence is a product of history. That is, that, the, that there is the idea of a limited violence. It's judged according, you know, who applies the violence and how they apply it. It legitimates, it limits the violence so that this sort of violence is a delimiting violence. And the presumption is that just means will automatically bring about just ends. And where in natural law, just ends justify the means. So those are the two, those are the two categories he puts up. And so his point is that both systems call upon violence with kind of the idea that without interrogating the problem of violence or the necessity of violence. It's just presumed that violence is part of it. And so the inherent injustice is shown up when you put positive law with natural law. And so in the United States, his point is the two things are all the same thing. There's not really two kinds of violence. In the United States, if we had lost the Revolutionary War, then independence would be illegal. Maybe they would declare George Washington a criminal and hang him in a kind of law-preserving violence in be on behalf of the monarchy. And so to constitute a state is simultaneously to defy some other set of laws, right? And so the, think of our own constitution. We the people. What people? Well, the people that are being constituted in the Constitution. The, the Constitution, and this is the way it is always this retrospective kind of understanding, that the constituting authority is actually non-existent until the Constitution is written. So that to constitute a state is simultaneously to defy the law and to imagine a people not yet formed that will be formed if the violence is successful. This may all sound oh, it's kind of wild stuff, but of course the point is, and this all I think comes down to why they killed Jesus. You know, what are the Jews, or what are the Romans and the Jews afraid of? Well, the Romans are afraid the violence is getting get out of hand and we're going to have a revolution on our hands. Think of why people are so attached to their guns in this country. Because we may need to shoot them people when, the, you know, those liberal Democrats, when they come in to, to get our guns, we may just have to have a revolution. In other words, there's always the idea of a founding violence that continues to be present. In, and I think in this country, especially, you Canadians are so civilized, you know. That, but in this country, the violence is just always there, as if the revolution, revolutionary violence is always still a possibility. And so the law founding violence is not disconnected from law preserving violence uh, because it's always the case that, I don't, have you all seen that it's a terrible show, I'm not recommending it. We own this city about the Baltimore Police Department. You know, this is actually Benjamin's illustration. It used to be that the king embodied the law. So a king could not break the law because he is the law. And the only way that, you know, uh, if you overthrew the king, then you could declare that, you know, then you can behead him. But otherwise you can't, as long as the king is the king, he embodies the law. And Benjamin's point is the modern police force, especially in a kind of, in a democratic society, they're almost playing, not quite, but almost playing the role. Of, in other words, they embody the law at least in practice, if not in theory. And so in Baltimore, they uh, organize a police task force, especially to, for getting guns and violent criminals off the street. But this particular task force goes rogue. They, they just start robbing every, you know, they start 
robbing the, taking the drugs and the guns and reselling them. But the one part of the story that you can guess that I haven't told you, what population do you imagine that they target in their uh, supposed law enforcement? The black population. The black population. And so this comes down, we were talking a little bit about critical race theory. This is actually, I have a quote here from the Department of Justice. Now, this is an article that appears in their publication. The fact that the legal order not only countenanced, but sustained slavery, segregation, and discrimination for most of our nation's history, and the fact that the police were bound to uphold that order, set a pattern for police behavior and attitudes toward minority communities that has persisted until the present day. Matt, am I correct in saying that is what critical race theory is claiming? I think so, yeah. Both Matts agree with me. Matt Von Schuch. This is, you've had to deal with this, I presume. Is that your understanding that uh, if you had to define what critical race theory is? Yeah, I think that would be a good illustration of it for sure. I mean, you see it in other places too, from housing policy to uh, in red line districts, but, but it really reveals itself in policing. Okay. And of course, the black population, and I, it's not just the black population, but in this particular instance in, in Baltimore, it, it was black population, is bears similarity to the Jewish population in Nazi Germany. Now, that may be a bit of an extreme sta statement. And of course, the idea is that in some way th that they become the target of the law rather than protected by the law. The same thing true of the Native American population in uh, the period of discovery and settlement in the United States, that you don't apply the law, even though sometimes some people might have tried to do that. In fact, they really don't, they really have no protections under the law because they fall outside of the law. I'm going somewhere with this. And of course, you're already hearing the echoes of it. The force of the law makes its primary mark in excluding those who fall outside the law's protection. And that's, of course, what Paul is talking about in Ephesians. I think that is what John is describing, that the inherent hostility of the Jewish law toward Gentiles is definitive of what it means to be Jewish. And the question is if you can even have law without that power of exclusion. And the picture is, well, Christ broke down the dividing wall, that, uh, which is the law. He establishes the law of love, and in a sense establishes, then the, he fulfills or uh, suspends, is actually the way that Paul will talk about it. He suspends the oppressive power of the law. And so the markers of the law, you know, I think this is what's happening in John. What, what is a Jew? Well, a Jew is somebody who keeps the Sabbath, the special times. You know, time is a big deal in the Gospel of John. This is what Harrison, Harrisonville also points out, you know, that throughout the, what is structuring this Gospel is Cain of Galilee. Jesus says, my, you know, my hour has not yet come. And then, but he'll keep, keep marking down the hour until he said, oh, now my hour has arrived. And of course, the picture is when they're setting out to kill him, and the hour is, is the hour of his death. And so the Gentiles, they were not, they did not fall, but they in within the law, but stood outside of the law. But you understand Roman law also functioned in the same way. What was the one marker of a non-Roman, a non-citizen? Crucifixion, right? That a Roman citizen was protected from crucifixion, which was absolutely the worst thing that could happen to you. You know, think of Socrates. Socrates didn't mind dying. He even killed himself. He took the hemlock, but he died within the city. And that was more, it was more important for Socrates to die in good stead with the city. You know, I guess he could have fled, uh, but that never even occurred to him. And so to die outside the city is one of the worst things. And I think this explains who killed Christ. Uh, the Sabbath law is what Christ is challenging. He challenges that in chapter 5. He's going to challenge it with the blind man. The rules governing the temple, he's going to challenge. 
the laws against blasphemy, you know, when he says, I am before Abraham was, that these are the things that are going to be leveraged against him in the trial. As Jesus explains, and this is John 15, they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Their use of the law, of course, this sounds very Gerardian, but I, I don't even think we need to go all the way. You know, we we can almost say all of this without appealing to Gerard, uh, that their law, the law blinds them. And of course, the, the psalm is directly uh, links the persecutors. We often misread this. I think we imagine that it's the zeal of Jesus for the temple that consumes him. Well, if you go back to Psalms uh, 69, I think it's just the opposite. It's the zeal of the persecutors for the temple and for the law that consumes this messianic figure in Psalm 69. And so the psalm describes those doing the persecuting, they're the ones with the murderous zeal. And it is their zeal for the sacrificial system rather than a true understanding. And, you know, this is the quote that we can picture the prayer of the psalm is answered in Christ as their own table before them has become a snare, their own feasts, their own food laws. Their sacrificial feasts have become a trap. They've been trapped by their law, and thus the they persecute this messianic figure. I'm sorry, is that the context for the, the verse you mentioned it last week? And I think it's in Luke or Matthew, maybe, uh, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. Yeah, that's in Matthew. That's sort of that, that flip, because I, I struggle with my brain. I have, like, have to draw something out to get, get things straight. So it's kind of a reversal. Like what it's saying is that the violent take the kingdom and do it by force. But I, I don't get it in the context of what it's, what it's actually saying. If it's saying that, then I'll have to reread it and make sense of it. The psalm is this messianic psalm. It's about the suffering of this messianic figure that Jesus appeals to. And he says that they hated me without a cause. Oh, he means me. He means himself. And so he's applying the whole psalm to himself. And of course, the reason they hated me is there in the psalm because of their zeal for the sacrificial system, their zeal for the temple, or their zeal for the law. And so they would take the kingdom by force. Violent men would take the kingdom, imagine that the kingdom is established through violence. So I think that, that to come full circle, what we've just described is that law in the hands of whether it's natural law or a positive law, I think that Walter Benjamin is correct. The law then inevitably is built upon this violence that killed Christ. And of course, when we say law, I think we that literally the laws of the land, the, the police force, the way that we constitute ourselves as a people, but of course, then also the sense of the law, as Paul will talk about it in Romans 7, that the law of his mind over and against the law of his body. That is, the way that we take up law is inherently violent, culturally, socially, psychoanalytically. And so the thing that Christ is defeating, and I think this is the theme of John, it, uh, it is in the cross of Christ in which all of that culminates in his crucifixion outside of the city. Here he, he falls outside of the law. Here, you know, in Giorgio Agamben's phrase, the, or idea, and Agamben is doing a history of homo sacer, that there is just bare life, and that in an Aristotelian understanding, you know, bare life is not life that's protected. Only the life in the city is good life. And of course, Christ falls outside of the city. I think that's the significance, that he falls outside of Roman law, Roman citizenship. He, you know, in, uh, the, in a sense, the Jews have just become Romans in saying, we have no king but Caesar. Oh, they've just sold out their own religion. I think that each chapter in John 
we find the hour. We find reference to their wanting to kill them. We find, you know, as he does these signs, the reaction is a violent reaction. <clears throat> and so it's an unfolding of the passion. And, the, and what we're seeing is why they killed Christ and what Christ is doing in then dying this death is defeating this orientation to the law. That's a theory. So what's it all about? I mean, what's the point? How did we get here? Why is this going on? The, the point is peace and the peace of Christ that Paul is describing, that John is describing, that we have peace with God, we have peace with one another, and we have peace with ourselves, and that we're not going to establish that peace, that love, you know, love and peace always go together, apart from then this defeat of this antagonistic dividing law that is just the law of sin and death. In other words, I think we can take law and flatten it out, and that's what, you know, it turns out that law is always the law of sin and death in the hands of sinful men. The way that we would establish the kingdom is always through something. Well, we just need these guns. You know, we need to, we're going to have to shoot some people. We need to exclude some people. We're going to have to build a wall. And so it's inherently violent. And so I think the point is that peace, the peace that passes all understanding, the peace that Christ is bringing is over and against the violence. The truth of Christ that is there in John is over and against this deception, this lie. You know, this is actually there in the Psalm 69 too, that they, they talk about those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies, that people are grounded in, in deception. And I think that's inherent to the Psalm too. Kind of makes sense of the uh, Romans 2 talking about the law that is the law to the Gentiles when they don't have the law. That one's a tough one. How do we read Romans 2? This is, I kind of tend to go with, uh, well, it's not just Douglas Campbell, but I think what Romans 2 is talking about in that instance, Paul is talking about Christian Gentiles. And I know that's not the way we've usually read that verse. We've read the verse to some sort of uh, available light that is there for all Gentiles. Paul is not concerned at that point. I don't know that he's concerned anywhere to talk about people in general. He never talks about people in general. But his point is that there are those who have the law written on their heart. Oh, who would that be? That's the whole point, and that's what the Jews did not have. The promise is that this law would be written on their heart, and that's what Paul is referencing in Romans. Well, that's Gentile Christians, but the idea is it, the Gentiles get it, and the Jews didn't get it. So I would narrow this, the focus of that particular passage. Mm. Now, that may be disappointing because we base all sorts of things on that uh, Romans 2 passage. You know, available light? I, I, don't, I don't think Paul knows of such a thing. Well, the way I see it, and the, way, and the reason I brought it up is because a lot of what you're saying about the law helps me recognize that there's different expressions or different permutations of what law is and how it functions with the human subject. And the Jews have the law, and that's scriptural, that's what it says, and that's usually the way we think of it. But the, you know, the Greek conception of the logos and the principalities and vain philosophies and whatever else Paul's talking about when he's referring to sort of the law in general, or maybe the law as it's particularized in all these different places, it serves the same function. I think it's that's right. I think that's right. It would almost to be to my advantage to argue that that Romans 2 passage is just about law in general. I just happen to, in other words, that fits the thing that I'm saying. I just happen to think that that's not exactly what Paul's doing there. Yeah. And I think I've used it in that way before too. And I see how it kind of goes against everything that you're teaching, but I also can see how you could read it in sort of a similar way in recognizing that 
whatever law is to you, it's, it functions in the same way. Yeah, I think that's right. In other words, the, the spirit of what's there in Romans 2, I, I think our misreading is actually correct. It's just that it's not correct in that particular application of it. If you go and look at the context, I think it comes out. Paul is making an argument in Romans about Gentile Christians. Yeah. And also, if you, uh, if you take the five points of Calvinism and recognize that that can function as a law, too, <laughs> it makes sense, too. Whatever it is, I mean, something good and, good and, and true and your best understanding of biblical uh, resources and, and scripture, you can still take it and make it into law. That's it. And Calvinism is a beautiful illustration of taking the letter of the law and killing people with it. So, so is it I, the backdrop it, or is it the diamond? I don't know which. <laughs> yeah. So was, was this God's plan all along? I mean, do, do we, did we need to learn this the hard way? Is that why the world exists as it does? Or was there supposed to be peace and then, the, you know, the descent of Satan or whatever entered in? And so now we're going through, you know, I'm, I'm trying to understand the overall, why are we going through this? Why couldn't we just peace from the beginning you know it was an occupational hazard from the beginning yeah the maybe i'm painting too dark a picture you know i always think yeah but just a minute think of the the world that we live in what i'm describing is why there are evil people and where evil arises from what we're ultimately describing is systemic evil evil i think that sometimes we kind of trivialize it and we think, oh, the bad guys are, you know, that's uh, dancing and playing cards. And No, real evil is systemic evil. And systemic evil is a law, the banker as over and against the bank robber. It's one who founds a system and with living within that system. And of course, this fits John's picture of the darkness the, the darkness constitutes itself as a cosmos. And when we think about a cosmos, you know, there's, there's two ways of understanding it, that, that John is picturing a kind of closed system, and I think that's the system of darkness, that this is the way in which we would constitute ourselves apart from God. And the word constitute, I think, is the right word, that we would write constitutions, that we would uh, become citizens. What we are being called out in conversion is, in fact, a setting aside of this world order. In other words, that Christianity turns out to be much more radical than we may have first imagined. That if we picture it in kind of an N.T. Wright fashion or a salvation history understanding, oh, that it just is a, an unfolding from Judaism into Christianity, and we can take the you know the good parts of all this and but no i think it's actually much more radical that it is world changing it is world transforming that we go from one understanding the darkness to another understanding you know and and so it is a, an apocalyptic picture of what i think christianity is doing I don't have the answer as to say, you know, this is kind of Matt's article today. God, uh, where are you? <laughs> Why would you let this happen in Uvalde, Texas? But we could just echo that again and again. Whence the evil? Just one thing. I, I didn't get to read the, um, the article you had assigned called The Quest for the Church and the Gospel of John. But I did have a thought that just the word church ecclesia is to call out those called out and i kind of had the new thought based on uh something similar to what you were just saying we as a church are folks called out of every identity every national identity every um racial uh identity subgroup or any claim and that's related directly to law whatever it is that we would claim has is a law unto itself and so that our calling out as church uh, is that very thing a very apocalyptic community we're called out of left and right we're called out of any agenda or ideology or identity 
and uh, that was felt like a, a bedrock point just contained in the in the etymology of the word. Yeah, and in uh, the point of that article, but also I think I may have made the same point in the piece I wrote. You know, when we talk about the first week, what is happening? You know, in that first week, I think that we fail to understand. You know, if we give it a kind of light reading, we're going to miss what's taking place. Certainly, I could sort of see the correspondence of four days, the first four days at least. The most poignant one I thought was the governing bodies. I kept reading that in Genesis, like the governing governing bodies of the sun and the moon and the stars to govern time, to govern the structure of our lives. And so I don't know how it corresponds to the calling of the apostles, but um, in John, the fourth day, I think, yeah, corresponds to whether it's Peter or Philip, Nathaniel, Andrew, and John uh, being called. It is, it does have to do with establishing the church as the new creation. That's it. That's it. But I I wondered if there was something more to play with, at least uh, in terms of the governing bodies, knowing that the church is being called out of all political identities to a political identity of its own under one Lord um, and one baptism. That's right. I just want to thank Brian for saying that. I kind of got lost in, uh, you know, this political maelstrom. I guess to to, to specifically to Brian's question as to the governing bodies, I mean, and the markers of time, I mean, you do have things to play with there, I think, in that, I mean, the church is the marker of time, right? Liturgical time, we keep a different different year than anyone else, but also the marker of the beginning of time, because time begins from the cross. It's the church who determined that, and ultimately when it becomes part of Rome, but that that determined that the calendar starts over from the cross going forward. Excellent. I think this thing about playing is good because it's, I mean, that's what the allegorical wants us to do. I mean, that's what the, the, the method would have us do is, is, is compare notes and, and share, you know, like what we're seeing in each of us individually as our own, uh, you know, as part of the community, bringing new facets out. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, relating to time itself on the first day, John of the evangelist account of creation, John the Baptist announces the coming of the Messiah and the turning of the ages from an old order to a new. On the second day, the Baptist identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God and the chosen one. And an unnamed disciple, presumably the evangelist himself and Andrew, initially the Baptist disciples followed Jesus beginning the church and its witness on the third day. On the fourth day, Andrew fought, finds his brother Peter, who will become the chief apostle of the church, to tell him they found the Messiah. On the fifth day, Jesus calls Philip, who's the only apostle called directly by Jesus. And then Philip does what apostles do. He went and called Nathaniel to tell him about Jesus. And then you have a conversation with Jesus alluding to his coming glory on the cross with an, with an allusion to, to Jacob's ladder. And on the seventh day, then John the evangelist presents us with the wedding at Cana as an image of the eschatological wedding feast of Christ and his church, at which he provides the good wine. It's Andrew, and who's the guy with Andrew? I don't think it says, but I take it to be the, the, the evangelist himself, John. Finish that thought. Why John? John, in that case, bookends the gospel as the witness to what has happened. Um, he's the one of the first disciples who follows Jesus in, in, in the creation account in John 1. And then he becomes the primary witness of what Jesus does throughout the gospel, even standing on the cross. And the gospel ends with Peter asking, what about him, pointing to John, and Jesus telling him that he's to continue his witness until, until Jesus comes. And so you have you have the the gospel basically booked and with the with John's witness account, both his the beginning of his witness and the end Jesus confirming and calling him his witness. I also saw it as a it's more than a play on words because it's the same word, but the names for John the Baptist and the evangelist exactly the same. He never names 
himself as the the other disciple who was with Andrew, if he was the one that was supposed to be. Whoever's name is John, whether it's the Baptist or the evangelist, they're both witnesses. And the role is like, it's like John the Baptist. John the Baptist, he sums up the Old Testament and is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets and also could be seen as like every man because it even says that. He enlightens every man coming into the world. And there's just a lot of a lot of playing you could do, I think, with all the, the language in that first, the first half of that first chapter, especially as it spills into the, the calling of the, the apostles sort of bleeds together. The witnesses are one. You know, as we're doing this, you know, I'm thinking uh, uh, maybe some of you are cringing and saying, oh, come on now. Is it? Okay, let's say, what if we just wipe all that out and we say, oh, we don't read any anything into it. Do you think that John could have possibly written his gospel without these echoes? Just think of the picture of Nathaniel called from under the fig tree. Oh, you think fig trees are just, oh, it was just, a, he's referencing a fig tree there? Or is there, in fact, the echoes, you know, throughout? Matt, you did, again, you you ran down all of the echoes with the fig tree. So this is this is what you get for being so brilliant, Matt. <laughs> in Nathaniel, we see the true faithful, uh, the true faithful of Israel that will follow Jesus as the one who Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. John shows us Nathaniel's faith faithfulness by placing him under a fig tree. This is a place of the Lord's promise and blessing for faithful Israel. The Lord promises Israel during its wandering in the wilderness, quote, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates and a land of olive oil and honey. That's in Deuteronomy 8. Solomon, with the Lord's wisdom, ensures that Judah and Israel will dwell safely, uh, will dwell safely, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. The prophet Zechariah explains the promise of Solomon by declaring that the day of the Messiah is coming, every one of you will invite his neighbor under your vine and fig tree. Jesus sees in Nathanael the image of the faithful Israel sitting under a fig tree. Moreover, Nathanael, as one of the disciples who is to become the church, will be given the task of calling other faithful Israelites to join him under a new fig tree of the church that is faithful in its witness to Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel. What's happening there with Nathanael in regard to an Israelite in whom there is no guile? Um, I, well, I, th I think that's a reference back to uh, Jacob and his wrestling. And ultimately, Jacob becomes the picture of Israel always wrestling. Whereas uh, you, you get under the fig tree here, Nathaniel, you know, this is, this is the perfect Israelite. This is, this is the, uh, the, maybe the no more wrestling. This is, yeah, I'll just, I'll do what you say. I'll follow. So is, is that what uh, you're thinking? Or? Yeah, yeah. I really liked what you said there. The Israel or the, 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 the one with God, you know, Jacob is the one who is the heel grabber. He's the one who tricks his brother, who usurps his brother's place throughout his life, who tricks his father, you remember, with the, the hair and the smell. And so he, he's a trickster. He's, a, he's one who would wrestle with God. Is he an example, and maybe not, but is he an example of one who would take the kingdom of God by violence? literally wrestle his way into the kingdom. And of course, the idea is that the wrestling is finished, that here is true Israel being established, and Nathaniel is representative of true Israel. But the picture is that, and the word that is used, you know, uh, when they ask Jesus where he abides, and the word abide is thematic. Actually, this is in next week's lesson that I run down abide. But again, John is not, he's never just accidentally introducing a word. Come see where I abide, you know, come, come abide with me. That, well, that, that's going to be a picture of the abode, the dwelling place of God, that God come to earth is the true abiding place. Here is the true temple, and here is the beginnings then of this new abode, this new abiding place. This is a very different, you know, John is giving us the establishment of the church 
in the beginning of Jesus' ministry. When I was in Bible college, we did a very stilted reading. Oh, where does the church start? Well, that doesn't start till Acts, you know, when the get with the giving of the Holy Spirit. But of course, what what that's missing is this perspective that's there in John. That there is this founding of a new people, a, a new purpose, or of creation's original purpose fulfilled in this establishment of a new kind. You know, this the, these people who are abiding with God. Paul, to be last, you were talking about how our tendency is to spiritualize. And I think that there's a bad way to spiritualize, but then there's what we're doing right now, which I think is a good way to spiritualize. And we're just maybe even just one small step away, or maybe we're already there to allegorization, right? In other words, that I think that what we're, I'm trying to bring it full circle to how we started the class. So you started talking about Gnosticism and you started talking about how, you know, we can spiritualize sort of our understanding of everything. And I think that we really can do that in a deceptive, false way, but then we can also do it in a way that actually is true and it enriches, you know, what we would call the literal or whatever, right? So, yeah, we could say that, um, that Jacob wrestled with God and that Jacob is, of course, Israel and that, you know, that, that we're called to spiritually, right? That we, that we were called to this sort of wrestling, to this contest, to this arena, you know, where we wrestle uh, not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of this world. Um, and you could go on and on with these different ways of a sort of a, of a spiritual understanding. But I guess my point to what you were talking about earlier is I think that the law is a kind of constraining, hostile force. You Even the way you talk about it, that it targets, that it, that it you know, that, that well, only, you know, that, that's what you said earlier, that, that, that we can target some people with the law. Uh, that there, it's a hostile sort of way of talking about it, where it's almost like the, the, the law then would not allow for this conversation that we're having now. That is, is that, you know, there's a very strict sort of interpretation of how the law functions. This is how, what happens in constitutional law, of course, right? They, they try to, uh, the whole question really is about a matter of interpretation. So whether it's the Second Amendment or, or whatever else, it's like what they're trying to work out there is how to interpret um, and I think that what we're offering now, whether it's a fig tree uh, or whether it's Jesus likening him, you know, himself to Jonah uh, or, or any other number of ways of, of spiritually understanding truth um, is, is critical, is key, because I, and, and especially towards the whole idea of, of violence, right? Because I think you can even read parts of the New Testament and even of the, the, the Gospels by the letter of the law. Right. And that, the, the, and of course, you can, we can do harm um, in that way. And so for me, that's what this conversation kind of, which can become pretty abstract and kind of boil down to. And that is, is that I guess like the law can really just at the end of the day function as a sort of way to uh, have power over other people, right? And to dominate other people, to oppress other people. And there are usually prohibitions, right? Do not do this, do not do that which, of course, are, act as sort of an antagonistic catalyst for people to transgress, right? Whereas, and so, like, the, you know, the law never prescribes love. The law never prescribes, in a, you were talking about earlier, like a positive sort of law. Yeah, but is, is it doing what our Lord Jesus Christ, the way that he, his law was, was a positive sort of love for God, for love for neighbor, a doing of peace, of peacemaking, uh, of things like this. And so I guess that's a way that we can orient ourselves to, to, to the law. It's like, well, you can have a kind of do not, do not do type of orientation towards the law and then strictly interpret along those lines. Um, or you can understand the law, which human law can never give us, which is a proscriptive sort of, this is what you're to do, right? So in other words, like, I don't know too much about, I have to defer to someone like Matt when we talk about the way that the law functions, but I don't know too much about the, the laws of the land that say, you know, other than like, you know, you have to pay taxes or something like this. Like, are there that many laws that sort of act as a prescriptive way to be moral or to be, uh, you know, good? Or are they mostly sort of prohibitive laws that say, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this. And by the way, we're going to use an oppressive sort of power, our power to enforce the law so that you can't do these things. 
Whereas Christ is saying that, no, I'm going to give you like a positive law that you can, that you can do. This is some stuff that you can actually do. That's uh, that's positive. So uh, I don't know if that's yammering or, or rambling, but it's just, I'm trying to trying to bring together the whole discussion of like, okay, well, on the one hand, how can we do a bad spiritualization or interpretation? On the other hand, how can we do a Christian interpretation or spiritualization? And how does that relate to our orientation to the law, which is really when we're talking about laws, we're talking about words, human little w words. Whereas when we offer a Christian interpretation or spiritual understanding, we're talking about the capital W word of Christ, which is a positive uh, word given to us by God. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org. Dot org.